It's time to accelerate. Hey friends, this is Andy. Welcome to episode 655 of Accelerate, the sales podcast of record. I'm having two conversations on the show today. First up will be Chris Croner. Chris is a clinical psychologist, author, and expert in how to identify and hire the optimal candidates for your sales team. Following Chris, I will be joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Bridget Gleason. Today's show is brought to you in part by our friends at Discover.org. The Discover.org platform is a game changer for sales and marketing professionals. This feature-rich sales intelligence platform is supported by over 250 researchers who are continually updating the contact data and providing account-specific insights to help sales and marketing teams break ahead of the pack. You want to see the product live at discoverorg.com forward slash schedule hyphen demo. That's discoverorg.com forward slash schedule hyphen demo. Okay, up first on Accelerate this week is Chris Croner. Chris is a principal at Sales Drive and author of the book titled Never Hire a Bad Salesperson Again, Selecting Candidates Who Are Absolutely Driven to Succeed. Now, if you've listened to a couple of recent episodes here on Accelerate, you've heard me recommend Chris's book. So I wanted to have Chris on the show to dive into it in greater detail. Now, Chris has done a considerable amount of research into the primary qualities that great salespeople share. And he sums these up in a single trait he calls drive. Great people, great salespeople, excuse me, have drive. And Chris's research has found that drive is the best predictor of future success. So we're going to dive into what drive is, what it looks like, how to spot it, and how to hire it. Okay, Chris Croner, welcome to the show. Andy, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So joining me today is Chris Croner. He's a principal at Sales Drive and the author of a book called Never Hire a Bad Salesperson Again, Selecting Candidates Who Are Absolutely Driven to Succeed. So uh, yeah, I read your book. I, it's a good book. I mean, it's hard to, hard to argue with the message is, is you. Uh, you know, never hire a bad salesperson again. I think that's everybody's uh, sales manager's dream. Yes. Yes. But quite the challenge because, of course, especially in sales, now one of the most frequent complaints that we'll hear is sales candidates can often be very skilled, if you will, at presenting themselves as a very effective uh, salesperson, sometimes, again, particularly as a very effective hunter salesperson. But that job really requires um, a degree of psychological rigor that many other positions don't. And so sometimes six months down the road, a year down the road, they don't necessarily live up to all of the promises that maybe they made to the sales manager. So, it's really a matter of finding the right match, if you will. Yeah, well, we'll get into the process because that's certainly one question we'll get to is, is sort of these outdated stereotypes that the hiring managers use to type, yes. type cast, if you will, or stereotype the, the candidates they're looking for. But really, the, the central theme of, of your book is that you have identified this characteristic, which is really a, a combination of, of three characteristics. You call drive as being the central element for success in salespeople, that they yes. have this and they are increase their odds of success, or if they don't, certainly the odds of succeeding are substantially less. So yes. um, let's go through what those three elements of drive are. So of course. First one, achievement you talked about. Mm -hmm. So what, what does that mean? Need for achievement. So by way of a bit of background in terms of how we derived these sure. three elements, you know, we started out gosh, uh, over 15 years ago now, uh, researching everything that had been published on this topic academically over the last, what, 85, almost 90 years now, as well as looking at our own work, doing behavioral interviews with sales candidates and then circling back with their managers thereafter to find out who really does become successful. And of course, when we looked at all of that data, we found many of the things that you might, again, expect to be important, kind of the stereotypical things, if you will, in some cases, were in fact, in many cases, very important. Things like persuasiveness, and relationship skills and organizational skills. All of those were important. Mm -hmm. But above and beyond any of those by far, as you suggest, were these three non-teachable characteristics that continue to stand out and, again, differentiates those high-performing hunters. And yes, that first element is that need for achievement. And when we talk about the need for achievement, mm -hmm. we're talking about the person who wants to do well just for the sake of doing well. So the person who's high in need for achievement, they just naturally want to set the bar high they want to jump over that, then they want to set it even higher again the next time. So they're constantly focused on producing excellence just for the sake of excellence. 
That's okay. the first piece. Think of that kid in school that just wants to get an A, if you will. Right. All right. So let's break that down a little bit. So the first thing you said is that these three core traits we're going to talk about, they're non-teachable or mm-hmm. non-learnable. Right. And so someone can't learn how to become more achievement-oriented? Well, past the age of about 21, 22, that's a question I'll often get after a seminar, for example, is, you know, what about my kids? What leads someone to being uh, high in drive? And yes, you can, you can teach these things throughout childhood, of course. Um, we find that there's really a combination of two things. There's nature and nurture. So on the nature side, there's the way the person is wired naturally at birth. Sure. There are five key, of course, personality traits that uh, psychologists use to kind of give the taxonomy of personality, one of which is what we call conscientiousness. And there's right. an element of conscientiousness called achievement striving. And that's the piece that we're talking about here. So that's the way, number one, that the child is wired at birth, but then number two, the way that they are raised. So specifically, if you want someone who's going to be high in need for achievement, you hold them accountable for their behavior. It could be they're held accountable for their uh, academic performance. Maybe it's uh, their uh, sports performance, their athletics. Uh, maybe it's they're, they're in band or maybe they're just watching their brothers and sisters. Whatever it is, they're held accountable in some way for their performance. That combination, the nature side and the nurture side, by the time the person's in their late teens, early 20s, it's relatively solidified, we find. Okay. So just so people know, you're a psychologist. Yes, my background's in clinical psychology. That, right. That's my PhD. Right. right. So as people sit in there hearing, hearing Christopher talk, it's like, yeah, he's not, not blowing smoke. He's studied this <laughs> PhD in it. Just so, you know, not a, a, a you know, sales dork like myself that's you know, talking through his hat, but actually studied this. So, yes. Um, but sort of raises the question that everybody always sort of asks is, are good salespeople born or are they made? And this starts trending toward the born territory to some degree. Mm-hmm. I would say born then made. So on the born side, you know, there, there's that drive element. We can talk about the other two elements as well. We will. And on yep. the made side, there's those, those teachable characteristics. We can certainly work on things like persuasiveness and confidence and relationship skills and organizational skills. All of those things absolutely can, can be taught. But if we're asking someone to be an effective Hunter, you know, when I talk about hunter salespeople, I'm talking about the sort of individual that has to, again, go out and acquire new accounts. So psychologically, we're looking for someone that's going to be able to knock on the door, whether that's in person or over the phone, get that door slammed in their face, then knock on the next door with that much more certainty and conviction. And that's a very special person when you think about it psychologically. So that's why we're applying this rigorous technique to identify, okay, what are the key characteristics up front that lead someone to being effective in this role? Of course, keeping in mind, we can teach some of the others, but then how do we select for these types of characteristics? Because many sales managers, quite frankly, are frustrated. Uh, they kind of throw their hands up in the air thinking, well, I'm going to kind of get a good feel if this candidate uh, hits, hits my gut as somebody who'd be a great salesperson. Then, of course, that's the path to being yeah. disappointed if they're not matching. Yeah, yeah gut feel is... Usually not the good feel. So, so this, this need to achieve, and I think before we move on to the next one, is just so people understand, is, is this is not tied to money. This is right. tied to achievement itself. Correct. Now, there, there's an important distinction here because many sales managers will come to saying, you know, this, this is the, uh, the format I use when I select salespeople. I'll look for someone who has a mortgage, couple car payments, kids in school, all of these external so, so old-fashioned, by the way. It is. It is. But it they is. look for these, again, these external pressures. And yes, those things, of course, can be very motivating. But the key question is once those pressures are relieved, as eventually they will be, now how much effort is that person going to put forth? We often describe some of these individuals who are motivated just by money as the flatliners in the book because they'll get up mm-hmm. to a certain level of production right. and then level off. And you're left asking, wait a minute, I've seen this person sell before. I know they have what it takes. What's going on? Well, again, it's that internal passion that we're looking for, that need for achievement. So whereas that person who's, again, motivated by money will plateau, the person motivated by need for achievement will continue to excel. They'll okay. continue to produce. Money's still important to them, but they look at money the same way that, say, a great athlete looks at points on the scoreboard. It's how they show how well they've done rather than their goal in and of itself, if that makes sense. Yeah, or I'd say even the way a great athlete looks at a, a high-value contract is... Right, exactly. It's only going to happen if they achieve. If they yes. don't otherwise achieve, they don't get the money. So, yes. um, so the second characteristic, then, is they love to compete. Yes, competitiveness. And the competitive salesperson we find really wants to do two things. Number one, they want to be the best among their peers. Mm -hmm. Number two, they want to win the customer over to their point of view. Because to them, uh, psychologically, that sale is kind of like a contest of wills. So they have that internal desire to compete and win, if you will. Yeah. When I was reading that, I was was saying, okay, is that the case? Mm -hmm. I started looking at my own example and it's like, 
yeah, I, the way I sort of thought about it was, no, nah, that really can't be true. And then I was sitting there thinking like, you know, comments my wife makes like when I'm talking with my siblings and it's like, <laughs> you always have to be right. Right. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, well maybe I do have that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's like the key distinction. You make a really good point. Those three elements. So if you isolate need for achievement, you can be very successful as you can imagine in many fields of endeavor with high need for achievement. But it's when you add then the competitiveness, and we'll talk about the third trait in a minute, optimism, that again creates sort of the perfect storm, if you will, psychologically for someone who's going to be responsible for acquiring new accounts. Yeah. And, and so here's a, I don't know, maybe off the, off the reservation question, but, but you know, some people say, well, God, I, there's burning need to win. And other people say, I hate to lose. Mm-hmm. So is there a difference? It's kind of that push and pull. Um, we look for the person that hates to lose, of course, because when, when they lose, it's, it's often uh, difficult for, for them. However, um, when they lose, they're able to get back up. And that's where that optimism comes in. Because if they hate to lose so badly that when they do lose, they decide, they decide to go pursue something else. Yeah. You want to make sure that it's going to be, it's going to be the individual that, again, just loves to compete. They love to win. There's, it's more of a pull, if you will, toward something than that, that push going, oh, you know, I hate to lose. This just wasn't a good day. Maybe I'm not cut out for this. So we want to make sure that we have that individual that, again, they love to win and they have that optimism. They're able to rebound because, of course, when we're looking for somebody that's going to deal with that rejection, as I mentioned, getting the door slammed in their face again and again, that's, again, a very special person we're talking about. Okay. So third third trait, then, of the... The <laughs> the holy trinity of drive. You try over it. The third element is optimism. Opt- that optimism. is the person who is certain that they will succeed and they're resilient when they face the inevitable rejection that a salesperson has to deal with. Yeah, optimism doesn't get sp- spoken enough, not enough in sales, I think. It's, mm-hmm. it's, we talk about confidence, but we don't talk about optimism. And, the, and there's mm-hmm. a distinction between the two. There is. And it's really the way you look at the future, how you anticipate things will go. Optimism is an interesting one. One of the questions we'll sometimes get is, do we weight in our assessment the three elements of drive differently? And yes, we do. We have the highest weight on need for achievement. We find although all three characteristics are important, need for achievement is the most important of the three. It's important Mm -hmm. not only for salespeople, but the research also shows for entrepreneurs. People have to kind of get up every day and make it happen, and there's nobody standing over them watching them. Second highest weight is competitiveness. Third is optimism because there are those situations, as you can imagine, in which you may have an individual, maybe they don't necessarily enjoy cold calling, but their need for achievement and competitiveness are so strong that they'll just push themselves to do it. So they may say to you, well, I'm not as much an optimist as I am a realist. I like to really get ready for what might go wrong and prepare. And that's okay. We just like to make sure that we note all of those things on the assessment so that our clients, when they're, again, in that hiring process, they're kind of going into that new hire with their eyes wide open, uncovering any dynamics going on underneath the surface in the interview that they might not otherwise have seen at all before. Okay. So I think it's safe to say that most sales managers don't really think about this when they're, when they're hiring. Uh, certainly, certainly not in, in this you know, distinct three categories of, of traits that we're looking for. Mm-hmm. So, so how, do you, you know, how do you assess this? I mean, this is, I know they're off-the-shelf assessments. I know you guys make an off-the-shelf assessment. But, mm-hmm. but in the absence of using the assessments, is it possible to really assess candidates? We'll start with that. Then we'll, then we'll go to the assessments. Of course. So you can get a sense of someone's, uh, someone's competitiveness, uh, someone's need for achievement by the questions you ask, of course. We typically recommend reserving those questions till after you've done some sort of an online assessment. But again, just looking at uh, questions like um, when it comes to need for achievement, we always know, of course, the best predictor of future behavior is previous behavior. So during the interview, we want to establish consistent patterns of behavior the person has engaged in previously that will allow us to predict how they're going to perform for us going forward. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to need for achievement, tell me about the greatest goal you ever accomplish professionally. Really have them flesh that out for you. Well, what about, what about for entry-level jobs? Mm-hmm. And because, you know, there have been studies showing that, that you know, they, I read this in Eric Barker's book about barking up the wrong tree, about success is that, hey, you know, GPA is really not a great indicator of, of success in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, entry-level jobs, that's one of the first things people look at is, you know, what's the GPA? And that's the first screening they, they use. So mm-hmm. how, does, how do you make sure you don't screen out the right people? Very I, good question. If they went purely by GPA when I came out of school, mine was okay, but it wasn't, yeah, I wasn't top of my class by any stretch mm-hmm. of my 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, GPA is an interesting indicator. In some ways, it can speak, as you can imagine, to some elements of need for achievement. Um, however, we want to make sure that if we're looking at someone who doesn't have previous experience, that we're structuring our, our questions, our behavioral questions, in such a way that we're capturing the fact that they don't necessarily have that work experience. Right. So again, when it comes to need for achievement, a slight tweak to the question I just gave you. Tell me about the greatest goal you've ever accomplished at this point. It could be in academics. That's absolutely fine. And again, really have the person flesh that out. You can reflect back to them. You have to be proud of that. How do you mm-hmm. tend to top it? Mm-hmm. person high in need for achievement has a plan to top it, but not only that, they're excited about the opportunity to tell you, you have put them up to the plate and given them the chance to knock it out of the park. Also, what kinds of sacrifices have you had to make in your life to this point to be successful? What does that person consider to be a sacrifice? You really kind of weigh that against the kinds of sacrifices you've seen against some of your higher performing sales right. people have to make personally, professionally, right. et cetera. So another thing that was interesting in the book, and, and I've actually had written about this before, uh, but in a little bit different context, is, is you compare this idea of, of doing the assessments and, and this rigorous interviewing and so on to the process the NFL uses, the yes. teams use when they assess uh, players coming out of college they want to choose in their annual draft. Mm-hmm. And certainly, yeah, they, they invest millions of dollars and you know, a bunch of human resources to, to make this happen and, and yeah. very scientific and the, the assessments they use, the tests they use, the Wonderlick, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. No, really good point. And again, and, they are but, very scientific. But, but their success rate sucks. Yeah, yeah. And that's, and that's sort of the, the cautionary tale to this about never hiring a bad salesperson is that, yeah, you can do everything right and still the outcomes aren't, you know, it's not going to be 100%. I Absolutely. Mean, in, in the case of the NFL, there's the, you know, fact I'll throw out for people is that, you know, only 30% of first round draft choices ever make the Pro Bowl more than once. Mm-hmm. No, only, 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 wait, excuse me, only 30% make the Pro Bowl and most of them only make it once, right? Mm-hmm. So in terms of the people you spend all this time assessing and thinking they're the greatest candidates and they're going to achieve the <laughs> highest, yeah, the risks are still there that they don't given once they're put into the environment. So anyway, No, you make a very, very good point. That's why we always have to look at all of the other elements of what we might think of as the sales ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So yes, in this case, we're looking at the person's personality. That can be analogous to athletic ability. That's a very important thing. Absolutely. But then at the end of the day, you're exactly right. There are many other things. Fit with the company culture. Fit with a compensation plan. Fit with a management style. All of those things come together, yes, at the end of the day to determine whether the person will be successful. We focus at Sales Drive on that athletic ability, if you will. How Mm -hmm. high can they jump? How fast can they run? That Mm -hmm. drive element. And that's an important piece. But you're absolutely right. It's not the only piece. So it's always important, again, especially to the extent that we can in our hiring process to cover all of those other elements of the ecosystem as well. Yeah. Well, I think that's really a critical point for people. And I have presented and have you know, courseware for people about you know, how to have a fairly rigid standardized process for hiring and assessing, mm-hmm. well, hiring, assessing being part of that. But, but your point is absolutely true, is that too often hiring managers aren't gathering data points. Mm-hmm. We're doing things anecdotally. Yep. And if you want to, you should really look at your hiring process as really a risk mitigation process. Yes. And so if you're saying, look, I'm trying to mitigate the risk, I know it's not going to be 100% successful, but I'm trying to mitigate the risk of failure. Mm-hmm then, yeah, one of the things you want to do is you want to gather as much data as you possibly can about the candidate. And okay. so let's, let's talk about your guys' specialty, which is these online assessments or assessment tools. Mm-hmm. I'm a big believer that every candidate that you want to, well, when you get to a certain stage in your process, once you've screened them and you decided, look, they're worth interviewing, mm-hmm. I recommend before you interview that you do the assessment and make another judgment after you've done the assessment whether they're worth bringing in for an interview. Right. Yeah, certainly it's, it's the value of your time. You know, uh, they're, they're, the challenge that many companies will have is they'll be tempted uh, to use the assessment the wrong way. And I'm sure you've seen it. They want to use it at the very end of the process. Well, or they want to put too much stake in it. Yep. And, yep. and no, no reflection on your assessment because I haven't taken it mm-hmm. other than reading in the book and looking at your assessment examples you gave in the book. But, mm-hmm. but I remember getting a call once from a, a client saying, yeah, I just hired this VP of sales and it's just not working out. And we gave him this assessment and as one of the well-known off-the-shelf, you know, assessments that we all know the name of. Mm-hmm. And he did really well on it, but he's horrible. And these assessments suck. And it's like, dude, <laughs> <laughs> you took that as, you weighted that more heavily than the interview you had with the guy. Wow. Right? Yeah. I mean, you can't do that. I mean, assess, so 
get your thoughts about this. As, and you talk about the sum is, I mean, I think you need to have, you know, seven or eight or nine different data points during an interview process and screening process. Yes. So that you create a scorecard of which the assessment is one of the things that you're, you're scoring somebody on. Yes. But by the same token, the interview is only one of the things you're scoring on. And it's not necessarily weighted any more heavily or, or less, lesser than some of the others. Yes. I like, you know, that's such a good point just to uh, talk about that example a little bit. So this was a VP of sales and they relied just on the assessment. Well, they interviewed him obviously, but, but you know, yeah, I think, I think what he did is I think he overrode his gut instincts. Wow. Yeah. Because the assessment said, yeah, he scored really high on the assessment. And it's like, yeah. I mean, though we were saying don't rely on gut. Yeah. He, ignored, he ignored his gut which can be equally as dangerous. Very, very true. We, we found that, again, the assessment process when it comes to those leadership roles, we rely on that much less. We don't use our assessment, for example, for any leadership roles, unless, of course, the person's a player coach just to determine sure. the potential on the player side. So we just focus right. on that, um, that person's ability as a salesperson. So it's all about putting the results in context. I like to say the well-constructed test is like the x-ray. It allows us to determine, aha, there's something here. Then the well-constructed behavioral interview is like the CAT scan. Uh, the person has done well on the assessment. That's great. That's mm-hmm. not the be-all end-all. Mm-hmm. Now earn the privilege to be grilled by you in the interview. And that's where you bring them in and you continue to verify those elements of drive using those well-constructed behavioral interview questions. And then you also look at, again, those more teachable characteristics, things like, again, confidence. Does the person have a thick skin? Can they kind of handle when they, when they get re- rejected? Uh, persuasion. Does the person enjoy selling and negotiating? Will they move the sale from the first call to the second call to the close? Relationship skills. Is the person comfortable reaching out to other people socially? And then organizational skills. Right. Is the person comfortable uh, dotting their I's and crossing their T's? All right. Well, let's talk about the the interview process. So let's say somebody, excuse me, somebody has done a good job on the the assessment, or mm-hmm. not, they do a good job, but they scored well. Mm-hmm. Um, again, most companies, hey, we'll bring somebody in, talk to three or four people. Everybody's got their own questions they ask, blah, 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 which is again, hey, friends, that's that's old fashioned. It's not what happens anymore. Mm-hmm. Again, we're we're talking about data. We're trying to get a data driven process for hiring somebody. Mm-hmm. So, my belief is best practices is that. Yeah, maybe a four interviewers of which three or maybe all four or all four is yes, the same questions mm-hmm. in the same order. Mm-hmm. And everybody scores it and that becomes another data point. Yes, absolutely. It gives you a, a common context around which to meet following that day of assessment or that day of interviewing, if you will. You know, you can come to a consensus much, much easier. People have been looking at the same thing. So if you have a company that's able to do that, that's fantastic. That's certainly the ideal way to go, especially if everybody can rate. You know, you can just decide up front, at, you know, what's a one, what's a two, what's a three, what's a four, yeah, what's a five. You, you define the benchmark ahead of time. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, I mean, if you're a sales manager, you're listening to this and you're saying, oh, no, 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 I've got the great question I always ask somebody that always gets solicits the best in. No, you don't. <laughs> yeah, and unless you think you have a 100% hit rate uh, in terms of good hires, which nobody does. Mm-hmm. is what you want to do is, is, again, you're having a data-driven process. You have scorecards you create for each step of the way, whether it's screening or the assessments or the preliminary screening interview or topic I love to talk about, and you touch on in the book, is testing. Mm-hmm. Right? Is, is Another thing is if you have you know, very specific skills that you outline that people must have in the job, how are you testing that they actually have it? Right. So I don't yeah. know what you, what you recommend in terms of how people test, but uh, we'll, let's talk about that for a little bit. Sure. So in terms of testing, just to clarify, uh, we're talking about testing for, say, sales-specific related skills like yes. presentation, for example. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. That's, that's a very good way to get a good diagnostic. So it's important to think about when we're doing that. Number one, how quickly do we need the person to be up to speed and start producing mm-hmm. versus um, do we have the opportunity to train the person? Right. So if we need the person to be up to speed and start producing quickly, yes, those sorts of tests can help. You know, watch the person do a presentation. Do they have the skills necessary to hit the ground running? Uh, but then at the same time, do they have those non-teachable traits underneath the surface mm-hmm. if we're going to be asking them to focus on hunting, that, that need for achievement, competitiveness, and optimism, that overall exactly. drive, if you will. That combination certainly is very helpful. Sometimes companies will ask, what, when, do, when can I find somebody that, or how do I find somebody that's going to have the best chance of hitting the ground running relatively quickly? And generally, what I'll recommend is uh, the person has at least two to three years of relevant experience at a similarly sized company, which is an important distinction many of our clients have found because they could often be tempted by somebody who's had a great deal of sales experience at a much larger company. Yeah. Where, again, they have all this brand recognition. They certainly had fantastic sales training. Surely, if the person's been successful there, they will be successful for us. And that's not oftentimes what they find. Because now when they're moving into a different situation where they don't have those advantages anymore, it's a completely different game. 
So we'd like to find the individual again, especially if it's a smaller company, the person that has, again, two to three years relevant experience, Mm -hmm. similarly sized company, and at least a four or a five, you know, the green zone, if you will, on five. That combination, although it's not a perfect correlation, does tend to predict that the person is going to have a much easier time of hitting the ground running, if you will. Yeah. So in general, the point being is, is you do have to test the skills you think are necessary. Yes. And not enough companies do. And mm-hmm. again, it's, we have a standardized process and, and I'll share one, uh, link to one that when people can see after they're done with this, but it's, it's, yeah, if it's presentation skills, if it's making cold calls, as you talked about, um, you know, companies will routinely, you know, put a, a potential candidate or a candidate in a, uh, a conference room and have them call somebody else internally, right? And they'll do a role play on a call. And they might have them do two or three just to see with different situations, different scenarios. Yes. It's, the data, it's just a data point. It's not mm-hmm. necessarily decisive, though it potentially could be disqualifying if they're really horrible. But, <laughs> but what, well, what other companies do, quite frankly, is which I think is the next step you have to do is, is see if they're receptive to coaching. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think that is really one of the key things. If you're bringing someone into a sales organization, is the person receptive to being coached? And mm-hmm. so maybe they do a call and you provide them some feedback and then have them do it again. Yes. And did, they, did they try to incorporate the suggestions that were made? If they did and they got better, hey, that's, that's a data point. If they did not accept any of the coaching, didn't try to integrate it into, then that's also a data point. Oh, yes, it is, because that's when the person is supposed to be on their best behavior. This is when you have the individual at their best. Now, imagine if they're not taking that guidance at that point, how they're going to behave once they've you know, safely got the job. So you're exactly right. That's also why we look at that need for achievement. When we have that person yeah. that's high need for achievement, again, they're sort of like that kid in school that just wants to absorb information like a sponge. So if right. there is something they're doing that's getting in their own way, they'll want to know it. You know, here's what you can do to make your presentation even more powerful. And they'll, they'll right. want to take that guidance. Right. So the other thing, though, too, is, is in addition to asking the same questions, and is you do need to have somebody whose job it is to do the deep dive into the into the background uh, mm-hmm. of the person. And, excuse me, that should probably be the hiring manager. Mm-hmm. But again, at that point, you're not asking your killer interview questions. <laughs> you're just going through and, you know, learning what it is they did, what they, how they perceive what they did, uh, mm-hmm. what the value of it was. And be interested if you had any other suggestions for people when they do that, that deep dive on the background. I do, yes. Yeah. So relative to uh, the person's resume review, say. Mm-hmm. We typically recommend for each position the person has held, ask three questions. Number one, of course, give me the basic job description. What did you do in that role? Mm-hmm. Number two, if you were on a sales team, where did you rank on the team? Of course, the competitive salesperson will know exactly where they ranked on the team. And number three, what got you to move on to the next position? And when you ask that third question, what got you to move on to the next position? I'm sure you've heard people will occasionally have somewhat guarded answers like, oh, you know, there were some disagreements with my supervisor or there were some misunderstandings regarding my salary, you know, things like that. When we start getting those more guarded answers, I advise our clients to use what we call the magic wand question. Okay, if we had a magic wand and we could change three things about the job, so you would have never wanted to leave, what would those three things be? And that's when you start to get a kernel of the truth. All right. So say, so say that again. The three. What are the three things you would have changed about that job so you wouldn't have left? Exactly. Exactly. So if we had a magic wand, we could change three things about the job so you'd have never wanted to leave. What would those three things be? Because now we're asking a very difficult question, but we're asking like it in it. a very positive way. Yeah, I like that. I like that. That's a very mm-hmm. good question. And they may say, oh, let's see. Um, my assistant wouldn't have quit. Um, I would have gotten paid more. Wouldn't it be able to the sales VP? You know, they give you something you can start to dig in on. And then the key is to see whether or not that behavior has emerged in other situations as well right. going forward. Because as we discussed, the best predictor of future behavior is previous behavior. So the more right. consistent examples you can find of that behavior emerging in the past, the more reliably you can predict that it's going to come to emerge for you going forward. No, interesting. Very mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, I like that question a lot. Thank you. That's a good question. Yeah, people, people watching this and listening to this, that's a very, very good question. So... It sort of leads then into the next one because you know, once you we talked about before is that you know salespeople, especially when they come into interviews, they can be skilled at being interviewers. They can you know persuade that uh, the interviewers in ways or make that emotional connection that obviously could mm-hmm. influence negatively or from the, not from the salesperson standpoint, from the hiring standpoint, mm-hmm. uh, the emotions of yeah. the when you see this all the time, sales managers they fall in love with candidates and sure. so. For me, one of the things to sort of legislate against that falling in love is the timing of when you do the references, reference mm-hmm. checks. So, 
personally, I counsel companies to do that before they bring somebody in for what I call the multi-interview day. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you recommend? That, that's an interesting idea. I'd, I'd love to hear more about that. I think that, that that's, a, that's a great way of going about it. That way, again, you're much more um, impartial if you will, because you've heard, especially if, you've, uh, if you're approaching those references carefully and you do have the ability to do it, you've heard a lot of pros and cons that you would not have heard uh, heretofore. At, at yeah. time, again, you have not yet seen that person. It gives well, you opportunities. Now it's not just a matter of, of taking everything you've already heard the candidate say, right. synthesizing it now in light of this new information, but instead you've got all of that up front and now you can approach the candidate, not necessarily saying so-and-so said X, Y, Z, but structuring your questions in such a way that you learn even more about that. I think that's- Yeah, well, oh, good. I'm glad you like it. So, well, the reason I, I recommend it is that too often reference checks are completely useless because they're used for validation. Right. Of a right. decision that's already been made. After you fall so, in love, yeah. After you fall in love, right? Mm-hmm. So, but they have no value at that point. Mm-hmm. So, because you're not going to want to hear anything bad about somebody you've already fallen in love with. Or you'll discount it, yeah. Or you'll discount it, right. So, why not do that before you've reached that stage? Where and look at reference checks as a further disqualification step, not a validation step. Sure. No, I think that's a great idea. And to the extent that companies can do that, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. All right, I didn't know where you stood. The, uh, <laughs> didn't mean to set you up on that one. So, um, I was trying to think what else. Oh, so the other point then too is so, and this sort of increasingly now is considered part of the the interview recruiting process is onboarding. Mm-hmm. So, sort of curious. You didn't really address that in the book. Is curious what your thoughts are just from what you've seen in your practice uh, with sales drive and the companies you guys work with in terms of best practices for onboarding and sales and how that sort of how you continue that from the interview process? Great question. So we actually um, have an, an additional report that we've developed since uh, Never Hire a Bad Salesperson Again came out called the Production Builder Report. And the Production Builder Report is designed for development, onboarding, ongoing development, et cetera. So it has all the same scores that a company gets on the drive test, but then a couple of additional pages of things they can do to mentor or motivate that mm-hmm. person going forward. And we are right now putting together a program for our clients that's going to be available online that talks about how do you effectively onboard a sales candidate? What what things can you do to make sure that they're going to be successful? So just to give you a little taste mm-hmm. of that, one of, the, uh, one of the elements of that process is having what we call a, a mission meeting, sitting down with that person and really deciding what's important to, to them personally going forward. What goals do they want to hit going, going right. forward? And what goals do you want them to hit? And kind of working together to come up with a plan for that individual that satisfies both of those sides, if you will. So we're going to be talking but, a lot about that but, in our... Goals just in the sales context or personal goals? Personal as well. So what does this person want to achieve not only uh, on the sales side, but in their own life? And how can we support you in those areas? Mm -hmm. Again, kind of putting the two together, the more you can do that, the the more of that identification you can do with the person and their own goals, the more powerful you become as a resource to that person. Well, and and as a motivator, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that, again, especially in small, mid-sized companies, onboarding is, is fairly haphazard. And so one of the objectives, obviously, if, if you're paying attention to, to what we're talking about here today is, is regardless of the company size, that you can be, you can have a process for hiring. You can have a process for recruiting. We didn't deal with recruiting so much here today, but for hiring that enables you to hire as well or sometimes even better, I think, than the big companies that have mm-hmm. real, or proven processes over decades. And it's really important you do that because as, Chris, you talk about in your book is the cost of a bad hire. Yes. You know, if you're, you're a CEO of a small company. You, you know that already. You know it intimately. Mm-hmm. Your sole proprietor comes out of your pocket. Mm-hmm. So, you know, anywhere from, you hear the stats, anywhere from like three to seven times the annual salary of that person. Right. You know, total cost, lost dollars, lost opportunity costs, lost sales, all of that combined. Mm-hmm. You don't want to rely on your gut. Yep. I mean, <laughs> this, is, this is the whole point is, you know, we want to help you get to that point where you mitigate the risks. You can't remove it completely. Mm-hmm. I've had people I've taken through a, a rigid process. I had one guy. I had a good process. Mm-hmm. And he guy showed up at work and basically <laughs> within the first week had his feet up on his desk and was reading the Wall Street Journal. As, as yeah. And I'm mm-hmm. like, and yet, you know, references were great. And it's just like, though I did the reference checks, I'll admit, I did them after we'd made the decision to hire. Mm-hmm. But who knew, right? Right. 
Right. And, and that not- it sort of goes back to your example with, with the NFL. You can have that great combine. And yes, that's yeah. an important thing. But then again, now we need to look at, again, all of those other elements as the person comes on board. How do we make sure that that experience is as successful as possible? And then ongoing as you continue to meet with them, continue to, to be with them, not only as, uh, as a, um, a coach, but also a mentor, if you will. So I think that's very, right. very important. Well, and so it brings up another question, which again, you don't address specifically in the book, but or at least I didn't see it, is, is, you know, this whole idea of we bring somebody on, they're on probation. Mm-hmm. And like I did with this gentleman that started, <laughs> read the paper instead of making sales calls. Yeah, I got rid of him within right. 30 And again, the, you, know, you sort of compound your risk if you're not prepared to do that. If you don't hire people with the understanding and you're not trying to be cruel, you're not trying to be mean, mm-hmm. but you are making a bargain with someone, you're you know, striking a deal with someone that, you know, you're going to do your job, we're going to do ours. Yes. And it doesn't serve them to have them in a position where they're not succeeding, where they're not getting benefits, something they can put on their resume, they can build their career on, and mm-hmm. certainly not benefiting you. So just interested in your thoughts about sort of the quick, quick to fire uh, for people that aren't. I think that's an excellent approach. And it's also important, too, to make sure that the candidate is clear on that during the hiring process, that this is the process we're going to be using. You know, it's a it's a probationary approach, if you will. And they're, they're very understanding of that. And it's not a surprise uh, right. as long as they have a very what we would call a very realistic job preview, exactly mm-hmm. what it's going to look like for them. That can be very powerful, too. You may have some people. It's one of the challenges a lot of folks have is. Um, I, I know that you will often ask guests, what's the greatest challenge facing salespeople today? And in many cases, it's the match, the match psychologically between, again, someone who thinks they're going to be successful as a salesperson, going to be able to knock on that door successfully and get rejected right. successfully, and someone who's actually going to be able to do that. Finding that match is a big challenge. And if we don't make it very clear to the candidate exactly what that position is going to ask them to do psychologically, mm-hmm. uh, what that's going to require of them, and what we're going to be look, looking at in terms of metrics, well, then we're doing right. the service. I agree completely. So, yes, it is important to be, um, uh, again, slow to hire and quick to fire, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was blanking on the entire phrase there. <laughs> slow to, I knew the quick to fire part. I didn't know the slow to hire, but yeah, that's a, that's a good way to say it is, mm-hmm. is slow to hire, quick to fire. And yes, yeah, slowing, slowing down, you can't emphasize enough. It's, it's hard to recruit. I know it's hard to find good candidates. Sure. And, but if you have this, this data-driven process, if you're going to use the assessments, you know, as, as Chris has talked about and outlined in his book and his company offers and Lots of other companies offer variant, you know, variants of sales assessments. Um, yeah, use this as a data point to help you make a better decision. Yes. And I mean, I, I have to admit, I'm, I don't say a skeptic about, I'm not a skeptic about assessments. I'm a, sometimes I think assessments are oversold. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people claim too high a correlation between scores on the assessments and actual outcome in the field. But mm-hmm. You know, buyer beware when you're looking for one of those is they are just a data point among other things, all the other data points that you're you're gathering on this candidate, use them appropriately. And, exactly. And use them because I had I remember the company, I forget who it was, is years and years ago, but they were sort of having complaining about how difficult it was to hire people and hire the right people and they weren't having very much luck. Mm-hmm. And it really sort of turned out that they were being persuaded and sold by the candidates coming in and and you know we finally got them in a more rigorous process but you just have to make sure you, you avoid that right you can't yes. you know interview process is no place for trust <laughs> very very true very true and that you make a very good point is that it, when it comes to assessments there are many many out there and yes uh, a lot of claims uh, are, are made and the challenge we find is that many of them i don't know how many you've taken but many can be just a little bit too easy uh, for sales candidates especially to kind of size up the test, figure out well, what's and you just fake well, the test. I'm sorry. Yeah, they, they say that that oh yeah, we you can't game our assessment. It's like, oh, you're on really. <laughs> <laughs> I consider myself very persuasive. Rate this from one to five. Yeah, well, yeah something it, like that. Everybody's gonna say there are four or five. Incidentally, we use a question format called forced choice to eliminate that. So for each of our questions, the person gets a series of three statements all of which will sound positive. So by way of a quick example, a question may say something like, I consider myself a leader. I have great relationship skills. I'm very organized. Okay, now which of these is most like you and which is least like you? Mm-hmm. So it really forces that candidate to make some very difficult distinctions, but then it gives us a much better sense of their real priorities. Right. So again, 
this is a little bit different of a format. It's very challenging, but we're constantly monitoring their consistency as they respond. Because as you can imagine, if they do try to figure out that, that format, yeah. it's going to be very difficult for them to remember yeah. consistently what they ranked most or least across the entire assessment. So again, yeah. designed to be more robust than the average. Good. Well, and I think that, that you know, if you want to learn more about that, you obviously want to check out Chris's book. He'll give you the information in a second. You know, they've got sample questions in there. But, but this whole process... You can come to my site and we'll have a uh, a link on a course you can take on a more data-driven hiring sales, sales hiring process, which every company should try to implement something that says a more standardized, more data-driven, just reduce the risk. And that's you know, the same thing we do in sales, right? I mean, mm-hmm. when we're selling the prospect, we're trying to help them reduce the risk of buying from us. Exactly. So similarly, we're trying to reduce our risk of basically buying this product from this person that, that wants to work for us. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, Chris, thank you very much for joining me. It's been great. You're so welcome. Thank, thank you again. If any of your uh, viewers would like a complimentary assessment, feel free to go to salesdrive.info. Happy to provide that for you. And I'm happy to provide you any additional guidance I can. Excellent. All right. And the way to connect with you? Uh, the best way is, again, salesdrive.info. Just go to that website. You can reach out to us there. You can also reach me directly at ccroner at salesdrive.info. ccroner, all one word, at salesdrive.info. Excellent. All right. Well, Chris, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Andy. My pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Again, that was Chris Croner, principal at Sales Drive and author of the book titled Never Hire a Bad Salesperson Again, Selecting Candidates Who Are Absolutely Driven to Succeed. Up next, it's time for another conversation with my fantastic co-host, Bridget Gleason, making her way to Wednesday from Friday. Now, today, Bridget and I are going to talk about a single topic, namely, how much time should manager sales leaders spend with customers? Now, I hear from a lot of sales managers who aren't hitting their numbers and are sort of at a loss for what to do. And a wise boss of mine, when I was first in that role, told me that uh, the answer to my sales problems were never going to be found in the office. In other words, I need to get out and talk to the customers myself, you know, get the unfiltered information, not you know, second hand, third hand through salespeople. So I need to find out why they bought, if they were going to buy again, or even talk to prospects that we lost to find out why they didn't buy from us. So if you're feeling stuck, what should you do? How much of your time, what percentage of your time should be devoted to actually talking to customers, to really finding out what you should be doing? Well, let's jump into that with our own Bridget Gleason, and we're going to explore that topic. Captain Fantastic, how are you doing today? Andy, I, I need to. Th- what? What? Okay, I haven't gotten my my Captain Fantastic doll yet, but I need to think of something uh, for you. I haven't decided yet, but that's that's going to be my goal. After 127 episodes, still trying to figure that out. I know you'd think I could figure that out, right? You would think. Well, right. I would think. All right, ask my wife, and she'll tell you. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> that's good. There we go. So. Um, well, a couple things I want to talk about this one in today's show is, is first is how much time this has come up and I've been having this conversation with sales leaders and I always get some interesting answers when I ask the question. And the question is, how much time do you spend talking with customers, not prospects, customers? And I'm always surprised how little time, <laughs> I've stopped being surprised now, how little time sales leaders are investing on a regular basis to go talk with their existing customers. And there's so much to be learned from doing so. That's why, that's why I'm, I'm baffled. And, you know, you learn why they bought from you, why, what resonated in terms of your value proposition, what the buying experience or the, the customer experience is like working with your sales team. And they think they can do, you know, hey, let's do survey the customers and so on. But there's nothing like having the senior responsible person for sales or the CEO even go out and talk to customers. So I was just wondering, sort of give us a sense of, in your case, you know, what sort of your routine is and, and in that regard. God, I would spend, how much time do I talk to customers? Um, I, customers and you're, you're differentiating between customers and prospects. Yes. Yes. From existing customers. Yeah. Um, I tend to talk to cus like I talk to prospects, obviously I'll get on calls and sure. talk to, pro- 
customers, it's probably, um, I don't know, a couple times a week maybe. And going out to see them when I can, mm-hmm. um, that's a little bit harder because some of them requires travel and sure. it's just, that's a big investment. So if there's a customer advisory board or if I have to go and I'm, I'm doing something else and there's customers to see, yes. I think for us, what's maybe a little bit different, interesting is we've got a lot of people um, paying attention to our customers. We, we don't just pay lip service to it. I mean, we really, uh, we want to engage. And so I sometimes feel like I just have to get in line. <laughs> like there are, our VP of customer success wants to talk to him and our CEO wants to talk to him and our co-founder wants to talk to them and our sales director wants to talk to them. So there's a lot of people that are reaching, that are reaching out to them. Mm-hmm. And that absolutely understand that, but, but certainly that's not typical in most companies. And, and this is, I think an area for the North spent a, a ton of time on this point, but it's something that had come up more recently mm-hmm. is, is that I think that, yeah, as a sales leader, you want to spend at a minimum an hour a week talking to an existing customer or more than one customer is to stay on top of what's really happening out in the field in terms of the sale of your product and how the customer is using it. And, you know, you can always get customer opinions filtered through customer success and your CEO, but there's nothing like getting it yourself because you're just going to have a different perspective on it because you were responsible for getting that deal in the first place and or your team. And there's just so much that can be learned. And, you know, oftentimes when there are problems that crop up in sales, and, you know, you hit a slump, you're not sure exactly how to move forward. You know, we've all experienced this, even in startups, where you sort of lose the recipe at one point and everything becomes a little more difficult. It's the one thing that the companies need to sort of wake up and say, oh, yeah, one thing we're not doing is we're not talking to our customers. That, that's our critical time. It's almost universal. You know, when you're in a slump, so the first thing you need to do is go talk to your customers because they're going to provide wisdom for you in terms of, what you should be doing to get back on track. So it's just, it's, as I said, it come up several times recently for me, and I was just sort of curious in your case. And as I've had, always had the sort of rule of thumb for sales leaders is at least an hour a week, if, if not more. I mean, if you're in a position where you have more field team and you're out traveling, you're on the road a lot anyway, you know, don't just travel to meet prospects, travel to meet customers. Yeah, and I, I think that for us, what we do here, we do that a lot. Like, I don't have that issue here at all. I've had that in previous companies where, um, you know, once we sign up a customer, we see them maybe annually or we, when it's time for a renewal, when it's time for an upgrade, when they have an issue. But here, that's not the case. I, I feel almost like we're hounding them. We want to see them so much. <laughs> well, that's okay. Well, that, you're the extreme on one, one side. Um, so, again, didn't want to spend a lot of time on it because we have something else we want to talk about, but it, it's just something to put a bug in people's ears is look at your routine, look at your week, and if you're a sales leader, yeah, how much time are you actually spending talking to your existing customers? And if it's not at least an hour, if you're not talking, having at least two conversations a week with an existing customer, put on your calendar and make sure it happens. Well, and I think, uh, I think that's right. I think that's right. If you need to schedule it, if it's something that's going to be, if you just work that way, um, then yeah, I think schedule it. Yeah. And on some regular routine, and you said you do this, but as well, and especially teams that are more inside oriented, you're not traveling to see your customers enough. I mean, some companies do, obviously it sounds like you do, but I would say in the main, the companies have adopted real inside sales models are not traveling enough to see their customers. And you have to make it part of the schedule. You know, if you're a sales leader, if you're the VP, if you're running a team, even an AE sometimes, you got to put it on the schedule. you got to make that investment. Get out there in front of customers in person. Definitely. And it's surprising that people don't want to do it. Like, why wouldn't you? Yeah. Well, <laughs> a wise person told me once that – you know, the solution to a sales problem is never found in the office. Yeah, that's great. And you know, those are words, words for the wise to keep in mind is 
is stuff is happening out there. And unless you're out in the midst of it, unless you're out talking to people face to face, I mean, obviously your week, hour a week, unless you're in, you know, company that's just selling in a local territory, you can afford to go out and see somebody once a week. But, you know, for most of us, that'd be phone calls, but then you know, on a regular basis, get out. Yeah. I was always struck by, we we're talking to one CEO, CEO of a public company. And I asked him how he split his time. Cause I knew him when he was just starting the company and it had grown into quite a major enterprise. And his answer was that he spent a third of his time He's basically on the road 100% of the time, but spent a third of his time oh, boy. Right. <laughs> uh, talking to shareholders. He spent mm. a third of his time talking to analysts as a public company. He had to talk to analysts. But then spent a third of his time talking to existing customers. Yeah, it seems like a, it seems like a reasonable ratio. Yeah. So as a sales leader, maybe you can't spend a third of your time talking to existing customers. But again, at a minimum, an hour a week. Uh, actually should be more if you can. But start there. You'll, start, you'll be surprised how much you start learning. So the other thing we want to chat about was, uh, I read something interesting recently. I was talking about this, you know, in the face of all the innovation and, and technology we're applying in so many fields, not just in sales. But the researchers now are starting to sort of pinpoint this conflict that sort of takes place between process and simplicity. And... And that the sense being is that sometimes we're so seemingly determined to maximize our uses of technology that we're putting these barriers in the path of sort of the simple things we need to do to really make business function and sales function. And that's sort of caught my eye because, you know, we talk about all the time in the show about the pros and cons of the technologies and tools we're using in sales, um, you know, the pros being, yeah, a lot of really cool stuff out there. The cons being, in some cases, companies are trying to do too much at one time with the technology or they've chosen the wrong technology, the wrong tool for the purpose. But but I thought that was that was fascinating that this is coming about not just to set in sales, but in a lot of other fields is that, you know, what you're really trying to accomplish. And it's sort of, you know, we've talked about the acronyms, the bald acronym, you know, mm-hmm. that I boiled I down, that sales, boiled sales down to that. And I started thinking about it after I read this article. It's like, well, that was, I guess, in the back of my mind, is sort of one of my motivations for developing that was seeing the sort of overwhelming complexity in some cases sort of slip into sales is, yeah, we need to understand that it's still really simple what we're trying to get done. And we can't let the process overwhelm it. Well, and I think process, for me, we put in process to help simplify that's why I want process. I want process to simplify. I want process to streamline. I want, I want process to make it easier, not harder. And if it starts to make it harder, then something's wrong. Mm. So I look for process to make things easier and to make things simpler. Yeah. Well, bravo. Right. I mean, I think that, that, that the, the trouble that we see in many organizations is that, you know, process is inherently inward focused and you know, a, a customer never buys based on your sales process, right? I mean, it's not, they're not buying your sales process. I mean, there's certainly might be influenced by the customer experience of buying from you, but yeah, you know, I, I don't hear as much as I, I used to, even just a couple of years ago where you'd hear companies and salespeople sort of leading off their pitches talking about their sales process. And it's always sort of like, yeah, mm-hmm. customer doesn't really, you think that's a value. The customer really doesn't care. Like, yeah, it's just the opposite, right? Of almost anything. Um, the only reason I think the customer does care about sales having a good process is it less painful to interact with them. Oh, yeah. Well, that's what like, I'm saying is they're certainly influenced by their, their experience yeah. buying from you. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's why if you're focused on your process, as you talked about is how do I keep my process on the path of uh, simplifying things? That's a, that's fantastic. But, you know, as, as you know, for, on this show and on accelerate with my non Bridget guests is I asked, what? my non, what? my non Bridget. What? There are people who aren't you guests on the show. Oh Can my God. I didn't know that. Oh, <laughs> the nerve. I'm All done. Right. She says, I'm done. 
That's it. Captain Fantastic <laughs> signing off. Signing for off. The, the, signing off the last time. Goodbye. Yeah, really. Yeah, we've been doing it in secret. Um, uh, okay. Yeah. Got to get out more. Yeah, you definitely got to get out more. So, um, sorry, I made you lose your train <laughs> yeah, of thought. Yeah, I made me completely lose my train of thought. Uh huh. Shall we? Personal attacks. What can I say? Um, oh no, I ask him. I ask all my guests at the start of the other than you at the start of each show is yeah. You know, what's the single biggest challenge that sales reps are facing? Mm. And it's this whole idea of being overwhelmed. Yeah, you've met, we've talked about that. Yeah, and what that really points to is is people doing the opposite of what you do is not consciously using their process and the technologies to simplify things and to keep the seller's focused on what the buyer's trying to accomplish. But again, it becomes almost like the process itself, you know, becomes so important. And, and you sort of see that because we've got sort of a proliferation of, of titles happening that are all involved in the sales process, you know, operations, enablement, blah, 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 blah. Um, and everybody wants to have an influence. So you can see where, you know, if the situation is right, is that can complicate things. Right. Definitely. So, yeah, just sort of a word for people as you're thinking about it. And this is not necessarily just relegated. Uh, you won't see it more on the B2C side these days than, than I'm seeing it in the B2B. But, yeah, I still see um, an ad a few years ago for some local company that, that I was watching on TV. And the whole ad was about how we... They say, we've got this incredible process. You call us, we're going to call you back within 24 hours. <laughs> and I was like, wow, wow, it takes a process to guarantee to call something back in 24 hours. Now, if you'd said 15 minutes, I might have been impressed. Yeah, that, that would have maybe gotten your attention a little bit more. Yeah, so if you're going to brag about your sales process, the point being is, is it has to have something have of value. Something to, have, some, have something to brag about. <laughs> have something of value to the, the people that are buying your product. Um. Yeah. So, yeah, I've never imagined that. I've never had a customer, you know, you can imagine a customer testimonial. Yeah, I bought from Logs.io because they've got the most delightful sales process. You really should try it. (laughs) (laughs) Make sure you talk to Bridget. Yeah, that'll do it. That'll do it. Yeah, I'm sure you can start putting those those testimonials up on your your Facebook Facebook page. Do I need to have a Facebook page? Oh, I thought maybe the logs.io fan page or whatever. Yes, okay, yeah, the logs.io fan. I thought you meant like my Facebook page. Oh, we could do it on yours. Uh, it, it, you I'd have you to look at it. <laughs> you don't have you know, personal business testimonials uh, pinned to the top of your, your Facebook page? Not, not yet. Not yet. Okay, personal branding. Yeah, we had episodes about that. We should talk about that. I just wouldn't do it on Facebook. <laughs> What's that? I know. I know. It's, I'm, it's, I'm, it's the next I don't thing. know what, I don't know what that makes me. I don't know if it makes me old, young, stupid. I don't know what it makes me, but I don't do it. Yeah. Well, I mean, my, my kids are millennials. They're, they're not active on, on Facebook or really any of the social media platforms. So there you have it. See, and I don't think they're alone. I think there's a whole swath of, of, uh, Digital natives that have sort of decided that that's not uh, not where they want to spend their time. So, all right. Anyway, back to the point. Don't let your process overwhelm your simplicity. Keep the focus on the customer. Uh, customer is never buying because of your buying process or your selling process. Excuse me. Um, because you're too focused on that, worried about all your stages and stage migration. Blah blah blah. Take that off the ball, and the ball is the customer. So, Bridget. Andy, aside from the fact that you're cheating on me, I hope you have a good day. <laughs> well, I, I, feel, no. I, feel bad. I feel bad about that. I know. I know. You know, I'm uh, joking. <laughs> joking. Yeah, I hope people, Andy, are, people are like, yeah, Bridget, oh my God, Bridget, did Bridget, she really Bridget. not know? Did Bridget, she really you know, not know? You know, there's another 525 episodes besides the one you recorded exactly. with you. Did you not know that? I do that under a different name. That's an assumed name. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So actually, yeah, we, we um, as people are listening to this, this episode, they're, they're going to see that there are some changes to, to accelerate their favorite show that, um, you know, we're sort of 
structuring our episodes differently. We're, we're just doing one episode a week now as opposed to uh, multiple episodes. And this was largely in, in an effort really to serve our listeners better because they were overwhelmed, as we used the word before, with how much content is out there. And we were, mm-hmm. didn't want to contribute more to the noise. So we're trying to be more efficient and, and we're having multiple guests on a single show as opposed to multiple episodes during the week. And uh, we think that'll be a, a better way to, to help people consume the content. I like it. All right. I don't know if you disappear before I finish that. So, and also, as you probably know, we're not on Fridays anymore either. So um, we can't, so we can't really call it frontline Friday. No, no, no. We'll have to, like, we should come up with a name for the segment. We'll, we'll, we'll think about that. And we'll take guest requests as well or guest Good. suggestions. Good, yes. Perfect. But, uh, yeah. If it was Friday, we could do like Fantastic Fridays. It could still be Fantastic something. Well, if it was Fridays, you know, sure. the alliteration. Know the alliteration, works. right. So what's a synonym for, for Fantastic that starts with W? <laughs> okay, that's the challenge. All right. Challenge of the day. There you go. If we have any suggestions, please send them in. We'll, we'll take them. All right, Bridget. As Andy, always, as always, have a great, great rest of your week. Great, right, you also. Uh, great sales day. Friends, go close a lot of orders. And we'll talk to you next week. Sounds great. Have a good one. Okay, friends, that was the show for the week. I want to thank you for joining me. And I also want to thank my guest, Chris Croner and Bridget Gleason. Join me again next week as I welcome Pat Lynch to Accelerate. Pat is Vice President of Enablement Excellence and Innovation at MindTickle. We're going to talk about the state of B2B sales in general and sales enablement in particular. And as always, I'll have my weekly conversation with Bridget. So be sure to join me then. Thanks again to our sponsor, Discover Org, for their ongoing support of Accelerate. And again, thank you for joining me. I look forward to talking with you again next week. Good selling, everyone. <laughs>